This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The founder of this company, 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house and went through real estate agent after real estate agent, and they were all talking a great game. And this guy who is selling his house, the founder of this, uh, this company, he's, you know, he's kind of an important guy and kind of, you know, should get the best treatment. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company, and it went into business, I think, three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond. And they are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. We have a 1,000 agents across the country, and they are people that listen to this show. And so when you go through Real Estate Agents I Trust, it's sent to somebody who already, you already know their sensibilities. They already are cut from exactly the same cloth. There's got to be a better way. There is. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. It's been a crazy week here in San Diego, and it's going to be for the next uh, about three weeks or so. I want to talk more about the California delegate process and voting process here in a little bit because it is all now going to come down to california which is exciting for californians because it never comes down to us we're the last state to vote the nomination is almost always decided before it gets to california uh but this year probably not so um cruz was in cal he was here in san diego on uh, on monday I know Trump just a couple days ago named his California coordinator. Hillary's in Los Angeles today. Um, so so California is um, busy. But I want to talk about Cruz because he was the first Republican to come to California. He spoke in San Diego on Monday, had a big rally. Uh, I introduced him. There was, I don't know, there were 2,000 people in the room. That's all they could fit. And then there were maybe another, I know there were at least 1,000 waitlisted. And there were probably uh, 2,000 people outside who couldn't get in. Um, so it was big. A lot of fun. My speech is on uh, our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook, so you can check out that speech. Um, they made a big mistake, though. They they uh, said, Slater, you got four minutes. Give you four minutes to talk. <clears throat> uh, Fourteen minutes later or so, I, th- I thought maybe I should start wrapping it up. And uh, I have four, fourteen. I mean, what's the big... The, he shouldn't give a radio guy a microphone and a crowd. That's not that was that was that was their bad. Their bad. But it was fun. And uh, again, that's on our Facebook page. And I want to play the interview that we did with Ted uh, on my local show as well. We'll do that coming up in the next hour. So one hour, we'll do this interview. Someone from uh, somewhere, like Washington Post or something, said it was one of the most thoughtful interviews they've heard with Ted Cruz, which 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 was a nice uh, compliment. Um, I asked him questions that he's never that that, that I've never heard asked before it made it made uh, some national news because i asked him about drudge report and i'll be honest the only reason i asked him about drudge report is because i knew the interview would then be put on drudge report <laughs> i would just be i'm totally honest the media is so super predictable um you know i asked why drudge has been in the tank for trump and i knew someone would be listening and would write an article about it and then drudge would pick it up because they scour the news for anything written about drudge and 
he put it up. And then once he put it up, then it's everywhere. Right? It's on Washington Post and BuzzFeed and blah, blah, blah. It's all over the place. Uh, but that wasn't even the most interesting line. That wasn't the most interesting part of the interview. I think the most interesting line was when I asked him what we talked about here last week. I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago. I said, Ted, do you think Donald Trump really wants to be president? And he said, well, that's a good question. I don't know. And then he went on. I said, hold on. Before we move on, uh, Mr. Cruz, um, that's an interesting answer. In any other presidential election, if I said, sir, do you think that the, the person you're running against really wants to be president? I'm fairly certain that that person would say, oh, yeah, of course he does. Like, like, of course he wants to be president. If I asked uh, Hillary Clinton in 2008, do you think Barack Obama really wants to be president? She'd be like, yeah, that's, of course he does. This has to be the first time when, when the guy in second place is asked about the guy in first place and says, you know, I don't know if he really wants it. <laughs> that's noteworthy. That's newsworthy. And we talked about that last week because I don't think Donald Trump really wants uh, to be president. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, I want to talk about Colorado here for a second, then we'll, we'll move on from this. Um, Trump talking about Colorado because there was no, I guess I guess you could say traditional primary to pick the delegates, but the primary process is pretty new, to be honest. And this is a little uh, paradigm shift, perhaps. But um, the first primaries in the nomination process started in the '60s, and it was a big deal when JFK, when his strategy to win the nomination was, "I'm going to win the primary states." So, so the concept of a primary is is on the newer side. Right. And now we just assume that that's how it should be done. But it's pretty, pretty new um, at all. So, so Colorado just doesn't do it like that. They do it this way that they've been doing for many, many years, uh, where every every registered Republican in Colorado is able to run as a delegate in the precinct level or vote for delegates in the precinct level, every single one. And then those delegates win and then those delegates move on to the county level. And they vote for other delegates, and then those delegates move on to the congressional level, and then those delegates move on to the state level, and then those delegates move on to the uh, national level. There's, um, this not, it's not new. It's been this way for many, many years. That's, I mean, that's it. That's story, that, should, that should be the end of the story. You may have heard these already. This is from uh, the senator, one of the senators, the Republican senator from Colorado, Cory Gartner. He said, if you can't figure out the Colorado GOP delegate process, how can you figure out how to balance the national budget? If you can't navigate the Colorado delegate process, what's your plan for Putin? How can you protect Israel at the UN when you're completely baffled by the Colorado delegate process? How on earth are you going to defeat ISIS if you can't? You get it, the idea. Uh, let's see. Elections are won by those who show up. I've attended Colorado GOP conventions for years. It requires organization and attention to grassroots to win. Cruz had it. Trump didn't. End of story. This is Ben Dominich from The Federalist. He said there have been plenty of examples of Ted Cruz being a savvy tactician during the 2016 cycle. But this Colorado disaster for Trump was not one of them. Like This was not a time when Ted Cruz was a savvy tactician. This is another own goal. right? An unforced air where America's king of the deal seemed uninterested in doing the actual work to make the deal happen. Even a tiny bit of preparation could have landed Trump several delegates from Colorado. Instead, he and his team appear uninterested in doing the work that everyone has been reporting for weeks that they need to do in order to win. Donald Trump just needs to Google 
how the convention process works in Colorado in order to figure that out. It's not, it's not even a hard process, it's, and it's out there. It's not a secret. But I bring this up because Ben Dominish, this guy from The Federalist, is a half a step away from the conclusion that we made. I think it was last Saturday here. And that conclusion is that Trump really doesn't want to be president. He's not doing the work that's necessary to win. I mean, here's Ben. He's like scratching his head thinking like, why isn't like a little bit of preparation? Trump could have figured this out. Why does he seem so uninterested in doing the actual work? And he's scratching his head. And he can't figure it out. I, I, I think I know why. It's because he doesn't really want to be president. Colorado wasn't a last-second rule change. Cruz didn't hijack the process. Like this forever. So everyone's wondering why Trump didn't put the effort in to win, but no one's coming to the conclusion that he's looking for a way out of the entire thing. Now, the, now let's say that's true. I move on. I won't mention that anymore. But if that's true, the only question for me now is when he drops out of the race, will he drop out and be the great unifier of the party? Or will he drop out and be the ultimate divider of the party? Will he drop out and ride off in the sunset on a white horse? Or will he drop out and destroy everything and ride out into the sunset on a giant bull, like in Blazing Saddles or something. I don't, I don't know. That's, that's the question for me. Now, he's going to drop out before the convention, I believe, if he doesn't get to 1237. Because I don't think he wants a fight. Well, this is what I was saying last week. Maybe I should say, last week I was saying, if he doesn't get to 1237, I don't think he'll go to the convention because he doesn't want to fight. So he'll, he'll think of some way out. And I thought he would do something to unify the party and again ride off in his white horse. He'll claim some victories. You know, he won, won a majority of the states and brought up some major issues and he's taken some party away from the from power away from the party bosses and stuff. Whatever. He'll, he'll frame it some some great victories, but he'll give the delegates to someone else. Walk away a hero and be a great uniter. But I'm not so sure about that anymore. My uh, producer, my director of the local show, he, he's uh, reading Art of the Deal right now. And he came across a story about a business deal between Baron Hilton and Steve Wynn, right? Two of the biggest hotel guys. So there's a, there is a dispute between Hilton and Wynn. Trump was sort of a third-party observer to the situation. And this is what he wrote in Art of the Deal. He said, I have no doubt how I would have reacted if I was Baron Hilton. I would have fought Steve Wynn and his takeover threat. I'm not saying I would have won. But if I went down, it would have been kicking and screaming. I would have closed the hotel and let it rot. That's just my makeup. I fight when I feel like I'm getting screwed, even if it's costly and difficult and highly risky. That's Donald Trump in Art of the Deal. I fight when I feel like I'm getting screwed, even if it's costly and difficult and highly risky. And that's what you've heard this whole last week. That's what this whole, it's rigged, it's rigged, it's rigged. That's him going down, kicking and screaming. Which leads me to believe that when he does make his exit, it will not be as a great unifier. It will be, I was robbed, it was fixed, I was cheated. And that will be the great divide, or the final grenade left in his wake. We'll see. one 933 Again, coming up in uh, 45 minutes, we'll play uh, Cruz's interview. 
that we did the other day. So Donald Trump, oh, I don't know if I can say this. Hmm. Um, I'll be general. Donald Trump is uh, going to be in California soon. And uh, obviously we'll get an interview with him again. He owes me one. When we did our uh, our 90-minute interview in uh, in the Trump Tower in uh, December, afterwards he goes, great job, Mike. Really great job. You know what I'm going to do for you? I'll go on your show for you. I'll do that. I'll do that for you. I'll go on your show. So I've been, <laughs> I've been hanging on to that. And now it's uh, four months later. Uh, time to cash in a favor. So we'll get uh, we'll get to Donald on in a little bit. And that's going to be my first question. Do you really want to be president? We'll see. <laughs> we'll see what he said. All right. I want to talk about California here for one more uh, one more quick segment and let you know how important it is, at least to the Cruz camp. They are going gangbusters in California. Ted Cruz is putting, I don't want to say all of his energy, but he's going to put a ton of energy and money and time into California. He's putting, I don't want to say all of them, but a lot of his eggs in the California basket. And we'll tell you. Uh, why and how and what that'll mean for the, the states from now until June 8th. But there's an asterisk on June 8th. I'll tell you what that's about next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. The founder of this company, 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house and went through real estate agent after real estate agent, and they were all talking a great game. And this guy who is selling his house, the founder of this, uh, this company, he's, you know, he's kind of an important guy and kind of, you know, should get the best treatment. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company. And it went into business, I think, three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond. And they are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. We have a 1,000 agents across the country. And they are people that listen to this show. And so when you go through real estate agents I trust, it's sent to somebody who already, you already know their sensibilities. They already are cut from exactly the same cloth. There's got to be a better way. There is. Real estate agents, I trust.com. Mike Slater. What instrument is that? How are you, Slater? Um, all right, final thoughts on Cruz here. Um, so, just something to keep in the back of your mind uh, California is the last state to vote. We are June 7th. But there's an asterisk on that. 70% of the ballots, and I, I said this on Fox Business yesterday, if you were watching the Lou Dobbs show, uh, 70% of the ballots in California are mail-in ballots. And mail-in ballots go out May 10th? Right around May 10th. 9th, 10th, 11th. Sorry, I'm trying to find what date May 10th is. Uh, yeah, it's a Tuesday. It's May, maybe May 9th. Right, right around that. So... Ted Cruz's campaign is ramping up now to peak May 10th, right when the mail-in ballots go out. They consider May 10th to be Election Day in California. So that's why they're here already, and they're going to be here all month. Trump's campaign just started thinking about California. I mean, Trump just hired uh, a guy in Sacramento to be the, the coordinator for California. 
as usual, way behind. Um, because the cruise team thinks it's going to come down to California. Not that not that Cruz is going to win it, although he might. And I'll, I'll talk about how California delegates work here in a second. But um, they're just trying to keep him from getting 1237. That's the game. That's Cruz's game right now, is to keep Trump from 1237. And if Cruz can win California, it being the last and biggest state to vote, um, that's four or five weeks going into the convention where he has the momentum um, of winning. Right? So they're put, Cruz is putting a lot of attention into California. Let me be more clear with this. I didn't mean to glance over this. I don't think Cruz will get 1237. I don't think Cruz thinks Cruz will get 1237 delegates. But if they can keep Trump from getting 1237, let's say Trump does go to the convention. The first ballot where the delegates are, most of them are bound to vote for who the people want. If he doesn't get, if Trump doesn't get 1237, then it's going to go to a second ballot, and that's when all the delegates are unbound and they can vote for whomever they want. Cruz will crush Trump in the second ballot. It won't even be close. It won't even be close. And that's why I don't think Trump will go. I, I don't. I don't. I think if Trump knows he doesn't have 1237 delegates on the first ballot, I don't think he'll go because he knows he'll lose on the second ballot. I mean, you look at states like uh, South Carolina or, or Arkansas is a good state. Um, I think it's Arkansas. Yeah, I think it's Arkansas. They have 40 delegates, something like that. Trump has most of them. But if you put Cruz and Rubio's together, then they have the most. And Cruz's team has worked on the Trump-assigned delegates. So those Trump-assigned delegates all support Cruz. Now, on the first ballot, these Arkansas uh, delegates will go to the convention and begrudgingly vote for Donald Trump because they have to, because the people of the state said they do. But then the second ballot, if he doesn't get 1237, all those Arkansas delegates are going to say, Ted Cruz! Like, it is totally within the realm of possibility. Let's say Trump gets uh, 1,200 votes on the first ballot. He's supposed to get, he's asked to get 1237, right? He doesn't get 1237. Let's say he gets 1,200. Totally within the realm of possibility for Trump to get 500 on the second ballot. Like, not even close. Because Cruz has been doing the ground game to convince the delegates to vote for him on the, on the second ballot, if it gets to that. That's the game. And that's why California is so in play. Now, let me say one thing here. Um, this stuff's been going on for a long time. Games, shenanigans. I'm not saying it's right. Let me show you a quick story. Um, Morton Blackwell... He's been at every convention since 1972. And he said in 1976, this is the election where Reagan was trying to beat Ford for the nomination. The Reagan delegates on the rules committee tried and sh- tried to change the rule to say that Ford has to name his VP choice before the delegates vote. Why? There were six people who were potential vice presidential picks for Ford, six from six different states. So I'm making up the states, but let's say the, the VP choices were from California, Florida, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and uh, what's another big state? I don't know. Wisconsin. Those are big states, and the delegates of those states would love one of their hometown boys to be VP. So Ford was dangling 
these six potential VP candidates over the delegation of each of these states. They said, oh, the people of Ohio, you better vote for me because I might choose your senator from Ohio as VP. People from New York, you better vote for me because I might choose your governor from New York to be my VP. You better vote for me to be president. So Reagan's team, his delegates wanted uh, to change the rules to say, no, 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 Ford, you got to name your VP before the delegates vote. So let's say, uh, they, let's say that rule passed and Ford says, all right, fine, I choose the guy from Ohio. Well, now the delegates from New York will be like, oh, well, he's not going to choose a New York guy. So I don't know. I'm voting for Reagan now. Does that make sense? So this Blackwell guy, he said, if we had passed the rules change, I think Reagan would have been the nominee in 1976. And it was a very close vote. But they weren't able to change the rule. Ford didn't have to name his VP beforehand. And all those delegates from all those six other states where there might be the VP, where the VP might come from. We're all voting for Ford because, oh, they were hoping that if Ford wins, they'll choose our guy as the VP. Reagan's uh, rules people didn't, didn't want that to be the case. So listen, I say that because I don't, uh, stuff like this has been happening from the beginning. I don't know what the rules, I don't know how they could be changed to prevent Trump or Cruz from winning. I don't know. But, These, these deals and these promises, vote for me and I'll give you a tour of the White House. I'll let you ride in Air Force One. This stuff has been going on since the beginning. It's going to be a crazy couple months here. Glad you're here. Slater Radio on Twitter. We're going to play Ted Cruz's interview coming up in a half an hour. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Enough presidential stuff for a second. I have to share this story. We, I made a video about this. Put it on Facebook the other day. Might be right up there with one of our most viewed videos. Sorry, I'm pulling it up here. Yeah, it is. Please, please continue to share it. Um, crazy story. And I want everyone to know what's going on here. So, so my local show, we've talked so much about minimum wage. Like, I'm so bored talking. <laughs> Covered it from a million angles. I got a new one for you. Two years ago, Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles, voted to raise the minimum wage for hotel workers. Okay, they wanted they they raised it to fifteen dollars and thirty seven cents. I don't know where the thirty seven cents comes from. We'll just call it an even fifteen. This was two years ago. So everyone in the hotel industry in Los Angeles, I mean, I, I, the employees, right? All the hotel employees, super excited. Bill Martinez, he's a bellhop at the Sheridan in Studio City. He was stoked. He's going to get a 72% pay raise. $9 to $15. Huge. But I'll give you the catch right up front. There's a carve-out in the minimum wage bill. There's an exemption in the minimum wage bill. No, actually, before I tell you what the exemption is, let me say, say two things. Bill never got a raise, right? He was all excited for a raise. He never got one. 
Second thing I want to say is a question. Who are the biggest supporters of minimum wage increases? What organizations are the biggest champions of increasing the minimum wage? Unions. The unions love raising the minimum wage. Why? Why? What's the play for them? Why do the unions want to raise the minimum wage? Is it because they really care for the people who are making minimum wage? They really care for their family? No, it's not. Because if the, if the unions really cared about people making minimum wage, then they would be investing in people's education and skill sets so that they can command a higher wage doing something else. The unions don't care about these people. They care about their membership roles. They care about their union dues. They care about their bottom line. And they care about their union leadership salaries. So why won't Bill, the bellhop at the Sheridan, why is he not getting a raise? Because there's an exemption in the Los Angeles minimum wage bill that exempts unions. (laughs) The unions fought for a higher minimum wage for hotel workers and then passed it and exempted themselves. So Bill works at a union shop. The Sheridan's a union hotel. He gets paid $9 an hour. Jim works at the Hilton, 500, down, uh, 500 feet down the street. Not a union shop. Jim gets paid $15 an hour. Now, hold on. So I, I don't get it. You lost, you lost me for a second. Why would it benefit the union to have the union hotel employees make less? You're telling me Bill's in the union and making less money than the guy down the street who's not in the union. So why would people want to join the union if they're going to make less money? I don't don't get that. Okay, here's why. I'm, I'm right with your confusion. You're thinking about it from the perspective of a hotel employee. Think about it now from the perspective of a hotel owner. So now you're a hotel owner. You can either pay all of your employees $15 or $9. Now, you've always hated the union. You've always resisted the union as a hotel owner. You don't want your member, your, your employees to join the union. You hate the union. But now the government says you have to pay your employees $15 an hour. And you're thinking, I can't afford to pay my, my employees $15 an hour. I can't afford that. We can't stay in business paying them $15 an hour. But then the union comes to you and says, oh, you don't want to pay your employees $15 an hour? You know. There's a way around that. If you just join the union, then you only have to pay your employees 9 If you continue to not be a union shop, then you got to pay them 15 I'm just sorry. That's the law. It's the law, Mr. But if you want to get around it, go on and join the union. And the hotel owners are thinking, oh, I've resisted the union my whole life. I hate the union, but I can't stay in business paying $15 an hour. I have to join the union so that I can pay nine and stay in business.
Now the union employees are worse off, right? The employee who works at the non-union hotel is making $15 an hour. The hotel decides to go union. Now that employee is only making nine. They're worse off. They're making less money. But the union gets more members. And the union gets more dues. And the union leaders get more money. Make sense? It's a giant scam. Unbelievable giant scam. <clears throat> we made a, uh, a video. How long is it? Three minutes. It's on our Facebook page right now. Please search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook and share that video. Please share it to your, uh, your Facebook friends. It's a very simple title. The title is The Unions Exempted Themselves from the Los Angeles Minimum Wage Hike. It's a total scam. Someone wrote, uh, Sandy said, is this really true, Slater? Is that really what they did? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't <laughs> make it up. I wouldn't lie to you. They exempted themselves. Just so that they could get, so they could, they could make it an uneven playing field. They could make it nearly impossible to stay in business if you're a non-union hotel. So join the unions and you have to pay your employees less. Now, California a week or so ago passed a $15 minimum wage statewide. Now in that bill, there is no union exemption yet. I guarantee you, and we will keep an eye out for this. I guarantee you in the next session in Sacramento, state capital, there will be a bill that will exempt unions from the minimum wage. Why? Um, can we play this clip here? This is um, Naquisha Legrand on Neil Cavuto. This is one of the people who's fighting the, for the, uh, the uh, in the fight for fifteen movement, and she won, right? Um, she won. I mean, the, the the left won this argument. This is Neil. Listen, there's one word in here. It's at the end of the clip. It's not a long clip. It's like fifty seconds. Um, there's a, a word here at the end. See if you pick up on it. Um, that gives us a little insight into what's next. Clip 505. No, I see what you're saying, and I understand your frustration. You want to get paid more. A lot of you want to get paid more. But do you ever worry that it could boomerang on you? A lot of these restaurants, McDonald's included, are automating services, kiosks now that used to have people. Now all that automated. Uh, the food line is automated. We're seeing this in scores of places where to cut back on, on the cost of labor, uh, everyone from fast food franchises to retail sto- stores are doing that. Are you afraid that you're going to speed that process up and push yourself right out of a job? Not at all. McDonald's been around a long time. If they didn't want people in their store, they would have been replaced us with robots. Nobody wants to come and McDonald's. But they and are. Talk to a they machine. are going that way. You see, and even before we got to fifteen dollars, they've been doing that. And we're still there because they need us. And we're and as those machines. There, no, actually, they're scaling. No, what I meant to tell you is they're scaling back their workers. Don't you think an environment like this might push them to do more of that? And then, you know, it, it, it could be so dramatic, so fast that you won't know what hit you. And a lot of your colleagues you're fighting hard to support and get them higher wages could find themselves out on the unemployment line. That's not going to stop us from fighting what we, what we, what we deserve, because we deserve $15 Here it comes. an hour and the right to unionize. And that's not going to stop us, no matter what McDonald's want to push back and onto let's, us. Let's take McDonald's out of it if we can. Nicole. I think so we can stop that. Um, did you catch that? She says, we deserve... So, obviously, we'll look past all the, like, we deserve, we deserve, we deserve. But... 
because you don't deserve nothing. We deserve $15 an hour. Did you catch it? And the right to unionize. So I guarantee you in the next session in Sacramento, there will be a bill that will exempt unions, will exempt fast food restaurants from $15 an hour if they become members of the union. So McDonald's, who's been resisting unionizing, Walmart, who's been resisting joining a union, who can't afford to pay their employees $15 an hour and stay, stay in business, there will be a bill that say, okay, McDonald's, you don't have to pay your employees $15 an hour. You can pay them 9 but you have to join the union. And then all those fast food employees are going to go back to making $9 an hour, but now they're all going to be unionized. It's going to increase the union dues, and the union leadership is going to be making a ton more money, which is all what it's all about. And Nakwisha here will be making just as much money as she is now, except, except she'll be paying the union dues as well. Now, that won't really happen, that last part. Because before McDonald's decides to unionize, they're going to fire all their employees and replace them with machines and kiosks. And you can't unionize machines. So that's the one thing that won't happen. But uh, be on the lookout for a bill that will exempt unions. That's what's happening next. The unions don't care about people. They're just pawns. But the union leadership is much better off than ever before. one 888 Please share that video. I did a, a real quick explanation of it uh, on our Facebook page. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and you can share it from there. Really appreciate that. we got to get that story out there so that people start to wake up and realize that, uh, that all these low-wage employees are just pawns in a union's game. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slightly percentage. I see a bunch of people have already shared that uh, video on Facebook. Thank you for doing that. Um, So, tax day on Monday. That's awesome. Uh, This is the first year of my working life when I've actually made money. My first radio gig for four years was twenty-one grand, Um, and I was I was like a year over the eligibility for the state child health insurance program. So I was poor enough, but I wasn't. I was I was like a year too old. but anyway, now I'm making some money, and uh, it's the first year where I wasn't just crushed on tax. My accountant calls me. He's like, Slater, I need you to sit down. I'm like, oh, come on. Like, God, like, stomach fall. Like, oh, like, you know, you know the feeling. You know what I'm talking about. You're like, I don't have that money. Like, what am I going to do? How can you take so much money from me? Now, this year they took just as much money, but at least kind of evened it out a little bit better at the end. Um so if you're in that boat right now where your accountant called you up and said, oh, I, just, oh, I know I know exactly how you feel. It's the worst, the worst. I've, uh, if, I could, if I could change one thing about our country, about our government, 
I would move ta- to well, I first of all, I'd move tax day to the week before the election, right? Um, but no automatic, uh, what's the word? Not deductions, automatic, uh, what, what's the word? Yeah, yeah, with all or the, like payroll taxes, like I'd get rid of all that stuff, right? Where I'd make it so every two weeks when you get your paycheck, you have to go to the government tax office and write them a check for the taxes. So no, like no payroll taxes automatically taken out and all that stuff. Like you have to go to the government, like the DMV, you have to stand in line and you got to write out every paycheck. You get it in full. You get your full pay, but you got to write out your social security taxes. You got to write out your payroll tax. You got to write out every single thing and hand it to the government. Two weeks of that. And people would be outraged at the amount of money that the government takes from them every paycheck. And they don't even realize it. You know what I'm saying? Like we need people to work for it, but instead the government just takes it out before you even see it. Now, I would argue, of course, that uh, the income tax in America should be what it's been for most of American history um, and should be what it was in 1912, and that's zero. But in 1913, with the first income tax, we had to have an amendment for it, right? Um, it was one page. It was a 1% ta- in today's dollars, it was a 1% tax on any, any married couple who made over $96,000 in today's dollars. So 1% tax if you make over 96000 The highest rate was 7%, and that's on anyone who makes over $12 million. But if you made less than $96,000 a year, then there's no income tax at all. I was watching uh, 30 for 30 about the Orlando Magic this morning, and uh, I just got to the part where Shaquille O'Neal got traded to the Lakers, and the owner of the, uh, the Magic said, listen, yeah, we offered you less money, but we have no income tax. So he, Shaq went to the Lakers, moved to California, got more money, but he had to pay 10% of it to the state. So he, got, he actually got less by leaving, but that part didn't matter. And it's amazing, like states that don't have any income tax, people in California can't wrap their head around that. I used to live in Tennessee, and when I moved to California, I said, guys, there's no income tax in Tennessee. And they'd say, well, are there schools? Are there roads? Do you have a police department? Yes, we do. And the federal government could do all the things they want to do without an income tax as well. But I guess we're pretty far away from making that argument these days, aren't we? Coming up next, play the interview that we did with uh, Ted Cruz just the other day. I introduced Ted at his rally here in San Diego on Monday. You can check that out on our Facebook page. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. And again, that minimum wage scam about the unions exempting themselves. Please share that video on your Facebook page as well. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike, good morning. It's great to be with you. Sorry about that. How are you, Slater Crusaders? America's the greatest country in the world. I want to uh, play for you an interview we did with Ted Cruz just a couple days ago. Uh, we talked earlier about why he's spending so much time here in California. He's going to put it all in California, really. Um, we have the most delegates here, 172. Um, just San Diego County has 15 delegates, which is as many as like Delaware. Um, 
And we vote last, June 7th, but 70% of our votes in California are mail-in ballots, which we can talk about another day, the disaster that that is, but uh, just the voter fraud rampant. But um, And you combine that with automatic registration, which is what we're going to have next, and then it's just a free-for-all. But 70% of ballots uh, are mail-in, so, and those go out May 10th. So Cruz's campaign is going to hit California hard. They already have. It started with our interview on Monday. Uh, and I was able to introduce him at his rally on Monday here. And you can check out that interview or that uh, speech at our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. But I thought the interview was good. I thought it was enjoyable. I, I want to play it for you here. See what you think about it. Uh, here you go. Senator, welcome to San Diego. Mike, good morning. It's great to be with you. Well, it's uh, wonderful to talk to you as well. You're going to be with a lot of great people tonight. I am very much looking forward to it. So uh, our time is limited here, sir. I know you're about to step on stage in a couple minutes up in Irvine. Uh, I hope we can talk on the radio again. But I got a couple questions for you. First, absolutely, Alan Dershowitz, your Harvard uh, law professor, as far left as a, of a professor as you can get, said that, <laughs> said that you are off the charts brilliant and one of the smartest students he's ever had in 50 years of teaching at Harvard Law School. I have no question. I just want your reaction to that. <laughs> Well, it, it was very, very kind of him to say that. Uh, you know, I had him as my, as my professor in law school, and, and I'll say he and I became friends uh, in most part because because we would uh, we we would disagree, and we would disagree civilly. But he would uh, in criminal law class he he would get up and start uh, bashing Justice Scalia or bashing Justice Thomas, uh, d- disagreeing with some opinion that that, that they wrote, and and uh, that that would kind of. Um, get my ire up and I'd raise my hand and he and I would go back and forth and back and forth at it. And, and I think, I think we grew to, to, to like and respect each other, although we have very, very different views. And you did that against your professor who also at the time was Alan Dershowitz, right? I mean, like he was already that name and you had no qualms <laughs> sure. doing that and he controlled your grade. Uh, well, he, he did. And, uh, and, and often we'd go back to his office afterwards and continue, continue the really? discussion for another half hour, hour afterwards. No and kidding. it, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was a great teacher because he liked to press you. And it was interesting. He was, he was a teacher who was particularly uh, – he, he did not like what he viewed as, as weak-minded liberals, as, as someone who would stand up and just take the liberal position, but when asked to explain it, couldn't do it. Hmm. And, and, you know, Dersh would hit him pretty hard and say, look, you know, you know so someone would say, well, I just feel that's right. And, and, and it was almost like a scene out of the paper chase where, where, where Dersh would say, oh, you feel, do you? You're emoting. <laughs> I, wow. I thought we were in law school. I'm sorry. I didn't understand. And, and it, was, it, it was a wonderful process to really learn to, to think critically. And, and if you have a position, not just to throw it out there and, and say because that's what I want it to be, but, but to defend what you believe based on reason and, and law and facts and, and evidence. And I think that's, that's a powerful skill uh, in life. Are you frustrated that it seems like in our culture today – it's all about emotion. It's all about what I feel is right. Jerry Brown just the other day said, he said when he raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour, he said, I know that this doesn't make economic sense. Senator, it's all about what feels good today. <laughs> well, look, do a, we're going to do a couple stop and goes here. I apologize for this. I, I, only, only a few. Because um, I know there's a, a Trump supporters listening now who say, Slater, I can't believe you asked him such a softball question to kick it off. Um, I did that for a few reasons. First of all, Alan Dershowitz did say he's off the charts brilliant. I think that's remarkable. Um, Ted Cruz wrote a, two years ago, Ted Cruz wrote a 29-page essay in the Harvard Law Review about the limits of the treaty power in the Constitution. Just because, like, I think, 
who is that essay for? Like, who, who reads the Harvard Law Review? No one reads that. I tried to read it. It's excruciatingly boring. There's 181 footnotes. It's a scholarly law review article. Why did he write that? Was he bored? He was a new senator. It was January 2014. Like, what, what, I, I don't get that. He had nothing else to do. Who does that? He's off the charts brilliant. I would argue he's one of the most brilliant um, people to ever run for president. Does that make him automatically qualified? No, 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 certainly not. Please don't get me wrong. But um, I wanted to ask him that because I wanted to hear what his reaction would be. I wanted to hear, I wanted to sense, sense his humility. Um, if he was not a humble person, then, uh, or if someone was not a humble person and I, and I asked a question like that, then they would say, well, Mike, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I did graduate summa cum laude from Princeton and then I went into Harvard and I was one of the top recruits at Harvard Law and gosh, golly, I was smart, right? Like that, that's, that's a prideful person. Ted Cruz said, he, he, t- he went right off in Alan Dershowitz. He didn't talk about himself. He went right off in Alan Dershowitz. I think that's a, that's a good sign for humility. That's why I asked it. When I interviewed Trump for 90 minutes, my first question was all about his big buildings and how he transformed New York City. When we talked to Ben Carson, my first question was, how are you the, one of the greatest surgeons of all time? Right? So it wasn't kissing butt. It was like I'm genuinely interested in these people who in their fields are some of the best ever. Just objectively. Politics aside. All right. Continue on. Well, look, you know, that quote from Jerry Brown, it's, it's one of the very few times when I'm willing to say, I agree with Jerry Brown. Yep. It doesn't make economic sense. The, the, the actions of the liberal Democrats in, in California is once again going to hurt the most vulnerable. Every time you raise the minimum wage, you... Every single time you see low-income individuals losing their jobs, it's typically teenage Hispanics, teenage African-Americans, people just starting to climb the economic ladder. You know, Mike, I think from the perspective of my dad, in, in 1957, my dad fled Cuba. He'd been in prison. He'd been tortured in Cuba. And, and when he came to America, he was just 18. He couldn't speak English. And his first job was washing dishes, making 50 cents an hour. Now, the reason he, he got that job is because he couldn't speak English, and you didn't have to speak English to wash a dish. But if some liberal politician had come up then and, and raised the minimum wage to $2 an hour, what they would have done is they would have fired my dad and bought a dishwasher. <laughs> and if my dad doesn't get that first job, he doesn't get his second job as a cook making $0.80 cents an hour. He doesn't get his third job as a teaching assistant teaching math at University of Texas. He doesn't get his next job as a computer programmer at IBM. And he doesn't get to start a business with my mom, a small family business, and then go on today to be a pastor. It's those first rungs of the economic ladder are so critical. And I'll tell you, the reason I'm running for president is to bring back jobs and economic opportunity for those who are struggling to make it easier to achieve the American dream. So everything you just said makes obvious, and everyone here right with you, 100% economic sense, reason. If you were arguing that with Alan Dershowitz, I think he would even have to agree with you at the end. But it doesn't hit the emotional triggers for some reason. And not even talking about minimum wage, but just topics in general. And I think this ties into Donald Trump in many ways, too. But it just hits the emotional triggers without um, or excuse me, it just hits the logic and the reason without hitting the emotion. How can you hit the emotional side as well? Let me one more thing here. Sure. Um, sure. Arthur C. Brooks. I'm sure you know. He says um, it's frustrating when conservatives make arguments just based on reason and logic. And we don't use emotion because we think emotion is what the left does. And if we use yeah. that, then we're cheating. So how can you use emotion as well? 
You are exactly right, and, and, and typically Democrats argue from the heart and Republicans argue from the head. What is most effective is to do both, to argue from logic and reason, but also connect it to why you care. It's Look, when we were talking about the minimum wage, I didn't bring out the Bureau of Labor Statistics data on African-American teenagers losing their job. I talked about my dad at 18 not being able to feed his kids, not being able to pay his way through school. It, these are, are real issues. They're not abstract numbers. Yeah. People are hurting right now under the Obama economy. There are single moms all across the state of California working two and three part-time jobs because their hours have been forced to 28, 29 hours a week because of the disaster that is Obamacare, because Obamacare kicks in at 30 hours a week. They're real people who are hurting. That's what this election is about, is that the Obama-Clinton economy doesn't work. It is a failure, and when it doesn't work, you know, you mentioned Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks has a wonderful new book, The Conservative Heart. He talks about, you know, the biggest reason you want people to work, yes, you want them to be able to earn money, but, but fundamentally, when you work, when you have a productive job, it gives you dignity. It gives you self-respect. When you come home and look at your kids and you're providing for your kids, that meaningful work is powerful for happiness. And we've got the lowest percentage of Americans working today of any year since 1977. The Obama-Clinton economy doesn't work. And the reason I'm running for president is to fight for those people who are struggling to, to help give them the opportunity to have the dignity of work, to be able to provide for their kids, to have a better life and a better future. I love it. I love it. Dignity of work is something that's not talked about anymore. It's almost perceived like work is a necessary evil that we're trying to move past as opposed to something that's imperative for, um, for, for your hey, self-esteem. Um, every, every one of us was created for a productive purpose, not simply to sit around watching Gilligan's Island, but to do something meaningful and hopefully to make a difference in this world, make a difference in the lives uh, of our fellow men and women. Uh, general Stanley McChrystal, former general, mm -hmm. retired, his favorite interview question. Can you, first of all, guys, can you grab that clip uh, right there, right, when he's talking about dignity and the importance of that? Um, what Ted Cruz just said right there is going to be one of the most important arguments to make in the next four years. I'll explain why in, in a segment coming up here. Um, the short of it is when we, the, the left's big thing is going to be guaranteed minimum income, and it's going to be about moving past work. Like I said, work is seen as a necessary evil that we need to move beyond. Um, conservatives, it's going to be up to conservatives to make the argument that work is important. Work is necessary. Meaningful work is one of the main drivers of fulfillment and happiness. It's not, it doesn't define your worth as a human. Don't get me wrong. But it does have a lot to do with your dignity. I, I want to talk more about that coming up. Um, and I think what Ted Cruz did there is, is, is really smart. Um, We'll play more coming up. I asked him about a Drudge Report, which made uh, national news. And we talk, um, oh gosh, what was the other important thing? Well, I forget. You'll hear it in a second. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Cruz is going big in California, going big, going early. And uh, he was in town, San Diego, here on Monday. We had an opportunity to interview him. Wanted to hear what you think of our, uh, of our interview. Let's uh, keep going. Sit around watching Gilligan's Island, but to do something meaningful and hopefully to make a difference in this world, make a difference in the lives uh, of our fellow men and women. Uh, General Stanley McChrystal, former general, mm-hmm. retired. His favorite interview question when he, talk, when he tries to hire someone is, what would someone who doesn't like you say about you? <laughs> well, look, I mean, those, those are sort of the, the classic interview questions. Um, you know, the nice thing is, is, is with me, you know, it's not hard to find someone who doesn't like me. You just go to Washington, D.C., and, and just about every politician in Washington will tell you that. Um, and so what all of them will say is, is you know, listen, this guy is, is too hard charging. He's fighting for us to do things we can't do, and, and we're tired of that. We don't want – you talk to Republicans. They, they got mad at me because I wanted Republicans in Congress to actually stand up and fight against Barack Obama, to actually do what we said we would do, to stand up against Obamacare, to stand up against amnesty, to stop this debt that's bankrupting our kids and grandkids and, and the politicians in Washington – didn't like it because when I pressed them to do that, they said, no, 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 we can't fight on any of these. And I will point out that's why people are so frustrated with Washington because all of these politicians, they make promises to us. This is both Democrats and Republicans. And they go to Washington and they don't do what they said. Do and you, I think do you, on that on that, do you get frustrated yeah. when Donald Trump is perceived as the outsider when you're sure. the most hated person in D.C.? And just ask Robert Reich about that. Um, yeah. they're, they're more scared of you than Donald Trump. So don't you just want to yell and, and go back to my question about you and Alan Dershowitz. Don't you just want to say, listen, everyone, I'm the smartest person ever to go to Harvard Law and everyone in D.C. hates me. <laughs> Aren't those like your two strongest selling points? Well, I don't know that I would put it quite like that. But, uh, you know, listen, I understand the people who are supporting Donald Trump. It, it, it's people who are angry. It's people who are frustrated. They're frustrated with politicians in both parties that have been lying to us and betraying us. And, and Donald is a loud, angry, screaming, cursing, yelling voice. That feels like a vessel for that anger. I understand that. Uh, the problem is, if you're frustrated with the corruption in Washington, it doesn't make any sense to be supporting Donald Trump, who has been enmeshed in the Washington corruption for 40 years. Donald Trump has been supporting liberal Democrats for 40 years. And, you know, in many ways, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are flip sides of the same coin. Hillary Clinton has made millions of dollars selling power and influence in Washington. And Donald Trump has made billions of dollars buying power and influence in Washington, buying politicians like Hillary Clinton. And if you're fed up with the corruption, the answer isn't to to double down and get even more corruption, but rather – to, to elect a president who will stand with the hardworking taxpayers, with the men and women of this country, with, with the working men, rather than the bipartisan corruption of Washington. Uh, would you? Um, I think it's important to be able to see good in everybody. I'm sure you agree sure. with that, even your opponent for president. What is one trait of Donald Trump that you wish you had more of? Well, look, I mean, he is an amazing marketer. I mean, he is he is a marketing genius by any by any level. No one has ever run for president and been able to dominate the entire discussion by sending a single tweet in the middle of the night. And, <laughs> and Donald has a gift for that. Um, and I will say another, you know, another word of praise for him, which is that 
um, you know, he seems to have done a good job as a father. His, his, his kids, uh, but, but from everything from everything I see, seem to be smart, responsible, well-adjusted. I mean, that's an admirable an admirable thing, and it's a difficult world to, to raise kids well, and, and he, he has every reason to, to be proud of his kids. So I would absolutely say great marketer and brander as well. We've been talking about that for a long time, right? Low-energy Jeb, Hillary lacks stamina, sweaty Marco, Lion Ted. Now, Ted, that's got to get to you, right? Because his attacks have gotten – they've stuck on every candidate. How are you going to unbrand the master brander? Well, be, because the, the attacks he directs at me are false, and he knows they're false, and they're, they're laughingly false. And, you know, Donald has an interesting uh, situation, which is he engages in projection. What he's doing, he accuses everyone else of doing. How and, so? and the, the best response to a lie is just the truth. And, and, and Donald gets very, very upset. It's, it, it's an odd thing. On any given issue, Donald can give you one answer in the morning, a different answer at noon, and a different answer in the afternoon. And if you point out any of his previous answers, he begins screaming and yelling, liar, 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 you're lying. And, and it, is, it is utterly bizarre. You know, we had a debate where, where I pointed out that Donald Trump's position on Obamacare is that he wants to expand it to make it government-provided, socialized health care for everyone. It's the same thing as Bernie Sanders. And Donald just began screaming, liar, liar, liar. I'll give you another and example. Uh, it, it was his own words. I mean, yeah. I, I'll tell you something hysterical. Earlier in the campaign, we were playing an interview of Donald Trump on Meet the Press, where he was defending partial birth abortion and supporting partial birth abortion. He sent me a, a legal letter from his lawyer threatening to sue me for defamation for running a TV commercial that consisted almost entirely of his own words on a national TV program. He said it was a lie to show people what he had said. Well, uh, we don't, that's just bizarre. Sure, and we don't have to go that far back. Just uh, last week or maybe two weeks ago, he was asked, is abortion murder? There. So um, there's one more. There's only a few more minutes left, uh, but we never even got to the part that made national news. So we'll wrap that up. Um, and then again, we got to talk about the next the plan here forward for the Cruz uh, campaign and and for the Trump campaign. I mean, they're, they're two sides of the same coin here, right? Um, I don't know how to say. That. I'm not supposed to say anything yet about what Trump's going to do here in California, uh, but it will be very soon. Uh, Trump will be making his. California push and I really believe obviously every state until then matters too but uh, it could come down to California biggest state in the union most expensive state in the union and it can get ugly here talk about it next spread the word this is Mike Slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Talked to Ted Cruz the other day. Um, we haven't even gotten to the part that made national news. And then my favorite question was, do you think Ted Cruz or do you think Donald Trump really wants to be president? And I thought he had a really fascinating answer. Um, and then uh, we'll do we'll have one more segment after this where I can just sort of debrief um, my time with Ted um, this last week. What I saw and what you're hearing right now beyond the words. So let's wrap up the interview here. For running a TV commercial that consisted almost entirely of his own words on a national TV program, he said it was a lie to show people what he had said. Well, uh, we don't that's even, just bizarre. Sure, and we don't have to go that far back. Just uh, last week or maybe two weeks ago, he was asked, is abortion murder? 
And he said, yeah. I'm not going to answer it. And then the guy said, do you disagree with the sentiment that it's murder? And he said, yes. It was like weird. Well, let me ask you that question. Is abortion murder? It, it is the taking of a human life. And I think every life is, is, is a precious human life. Now, it's, it's in a circumstances where is it, you know, it is a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the unborn child, and it's a tragedy for, for, for a woman who has an unwanted pregnancy. And we need to be caring and compassionate of everyone in that situation. But I, but I believe we should work towards a society that, that, that welcomes and celebrates every human life as a gift from God. One last question about Donald Trump. Do you think he really wants to be president? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not a shrink. I mean, a lot of people have speculated that when he launched the campaign, it was it was on a lark, that, that he didn't think it would go anywhere. And then he suddenly found himself surprised that, that um, you know, his, his brand of reality television attracted a lot of attention. Um, I don't know. I do know that he has he doesn't understand the very basic issues and challenges facing this country. So when it comes to bringing jobs back to America. Well, Donald real quick, no if I can jump, or plans to do that. and I'm with you, but that's an interesting answer even, right? I don't know if he really wants to be, because yeah. has there ever been a time in history where you're like, obviously, be like, of course the guy running against me wants to be president. And you're like, well, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> like, that's weird. I think it answers the question, though, like, why doesn't he have the ground game that you have in any way? He always says, you know, I surround myself with the best people, but he couldn't surround himself with someone who can figure out how to get a delegate out of Colorado. So that leads well, me to believe it, that he doesn't want to do this. Well, and, and their team is, is not remotely organizing on the ground. It's, it's not based on the people. It, Donald is about Donald. That has always been the case. It is about him. It is about attention to him. You know, he, he was at rallies having people raise their hands and pledge their support to Donald Trump. Look, we don't do that in America. We, we don't take pledges to human beings. We pledge allegiance to the flag. We pledge to, 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 to support and defend the Constitution. But, but we don't. I, this is a job interview. I'm here, Mike, asking to work for you, asking to work for 330 million Americans. And the only pledge I'm interested in is a pledge that I'm going to take with my hand on the Bible to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Um, what do you but, think of Drudge Report lately? Um, not even <laughs> right. Not even about Trump, but their anti-Christian headlines. One of my favorites was a couple weeks ago, and it was in red, right? Pastor calls for execution of gays then introduces Ted Cruz. And I said, hold on, right? And I clicked it, and of course, he just listed a bunch of sins and talked about spiritual death, not execution. Um, And then there are all these headlines about people laying hands on you to make you seem like a crazy weirdo. I feel like we have enough people attacking Christianity. We don't need uh, Drudge's uh, help. What do you think of that? Well, look, Drudge Report over the years has has done a good job highlighting the excesses of the left and the excesses of liberalism. And in about the past month, uh, the Drudge Report has basically become the attack site for the Donald Trump c- campaign. And so every day they have the latest Trump attack. They're directed at me. Um, it, it, By all appearances, Roger Stone now decides what's on Drudge. And most days they have a six-month-old article that is some attack on me. And it's, what, it's whatever the Trump campaign is pushing that day will be the banner headline on Drudge. By the way, they no longer cover news. Remember they used to have things like election results? They, they don't put those on Drudge anymore. When, when 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 we win a state, suddenly the state doesn't matter. You know, Colorado, there was no red siren on Drudge when we won all 34 delegates in Colorado. That wasn't news because, I mean, listen, that's fine. If, if people want to 
want to get on the Trump train, they can. I actually think we need real and meaningful solutions to the problems in this country. And as president, my focus is, it's not, is going to be on three things, jobs, freedom, and security. Yep. My number one priority is bringing jobs back to America, raising wages for everyone, making it easier for people struggling to achieve the American dream. That's my focus. And I'm going to let others worry about the the, the silly political sure. game in the circus. La- last thing on Drudge. Um, I've always thought it interesting when the, the debate is still going on and they'll put a poll up who won the debate. It's literally in the middle of the debate, and yeah. they say who won the debate, and then Trump walks off the stage and says, "Well, everyone says I won the debate." <laughs> so wait, hold on, the debate just ended. Um, all right, well, well, you, well, you know, I will, I will say this, Mike: actions speak louder than words. Donald is terrified to debate; he won't debate anymore. He's he's just sk- he's skipping all the debates, and the reason is he liked it when there were ten or eleven people on stage because he didn't have to speak very much, and all of the bickering dominated everything. Now that it is down one on one between me and Donald Trump. And one or the other of us is going to be the nominee. There are only two people with any plausible path to winning a majority of the delegates, and that is either me or Donald Trump. And by the way, California is going to decide it. California, for the first time in decades, right. a matters year, in the A Republican year ago, party. when you got into this, did you think California would be in play? You know, to be honest, I didn't. I mean, we hadn't seen a, a primary go this long, but nobody anticipated Donald Trump. Donald Trump is, is a unique, uh, you know, it is a reality star substance-less attack and, and, and cursing and personal insult. You know, I don't think that's what politics should be about. I think politics should be about solving the real problems that, that Americans are facing. Got some uh, rapid and, fires for you, sir. I know you got to run on stage. So yeah. Quick questions. Uh, a Bible verse that has meant a lot to you lately? Um, you know, I would say Isaiah forty thirty one. Uh, those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That, that, that's certainly mm-hmm. what, when you're engaged in a relentless battle nationwide, when you have attacks coming, personal attacks coming at you, that, 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 that gives me comfort and strength. Um, what are you looking forward to least as being president? There's, there's no doubt the burden of the job. If you look at everyone who's ever served as president, they age, they, they, their hair turns gray. They, they, I mean, you can see the weight of the job. And, and I'll tell you, as, as you approach and you start getting more and more support and it gets more and more real, the prospect of serving in that office, you know, waking up on January 20th and, and, and facing the threats across this world, facing the threats of Iran trying to acquire nuclear weapons, the threats of an aggressive Putin. I believe we can stand up and defeat that. But but those are, you know, anyone for whom that doesn't take your breath away, um, you don't understand the seriousness of, of, of these challenges. And that, that is a weight that I take very seriously. I believe we can counteract it and defeat it. Uh, but these are exceptionally dangerous times, and we need a commander-in-chief who's up to the task. Best advice you'd give a 20-year-old Ted Cruz? You know, I would give – let me just give an advice that I would give. Look, a 20-year-old Ted Cruz, I'd say, you know, relax a little bit and, and don't be so hard-charging. Uh, but those are, those are lessons that, that you have to learn through life. I'll tell you, a 20-year-old generally, I, w- I would say follow your dreams, follow your passions. Uh, you know, ask yourself when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, what are you thinking about? What do you care about? And do that. If you do what you love, 
you're going to be really good at it. And, and, and so I think that for young people is one of the most important things is, is find your passion and devote your life to your passion. Very last question. Um, Bernie Sanders says GE and, and generally capitalism is destroying the moral fabric of America. Why is capitalism the most moral economic system? Well, because the American free enterprise system has enabled more people to rise out of poverty and into prosperity than any system in the history of the world. And and I'll say something that may surprise you. I actually agree with Bernie Sanders when he talks about how Washington is corrupt, how the fix is in, how both parties are engaged in corruption and cronyism, benefiting big business, giant corporations, and Wall Street. I agree. Now, where I disagree with Bernie Sanders is the solution. If the problem is Washington is corrupt, then we don't want more Washington. We don't want more Washington corruption. By the way, that's the same problem with Donald Trump. If the problem is Washington is corrupt, we don't want someone who's been an active participant in that corruption for 40 years. I think the solution instead is less Washington, less government power, and and lifting the boot of the federal government off the back of the necks of small businesses. Small businesses are the heart of our economy, two-thirds of all new jobs. And Mike, if I'm elected president, We will repeal every word of Obamacare. We'll pass a simple flat tax and abolish the IRS. We'll rein in the federal government regulators that are killing small businesses. We will stop amnesty and end sanctuary cities. And the effect of all of that is going to be millions and millions of new high-paying jobs. It's going to be wages rising for Americans across this country. It's going to be young people once again being able to come out of school with hopes and dreams and have two, three, four, five job offers. That's what this election's about. Senator, you're not in San Diego for a long time, but grab a fish taco when you're here. That's our thing. So uh, I, and- I look forward to it. And <laughs> let me encourage everyone, come tonight to the Town & Country Resort um, at 6. Sue, Ted Cruz, um, I want to know if you noticed anything different about him there. Tone, his posture. I want to talk about that next and what I saw um, at his rally on, on Monday behind the scenes. We'll do that next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. He's got a few minutes here. I want to talk about my time um, behind the scenes with Ted Cruz. Um, again, he was here in San Diego on uh, on Monday. I thought that interview that we just played was... I thought he was incredibly relaxed. D- did you notice a, a change in tone from when we see him most of the time? Uh, I think most people see him debates and like a victory speech or some stump speech, right? I thought he always talked like, <laughs> right? I, I said this on CNN the other day, and I, the host said something like, um, "Yeah, I can imagine him at home. Could you please pass the butter?" Right? He's all he's always doing his Harvard debate team thing. Um, I was taken back by how relaxed he was in, in that phone interview. I imagined him. To, to to talk like his stump speech, uh, even in a one on one interview, but he wasn't. Um, I, I guess what I what I anticipated was him coming at coming out like this, 
and then me trying to ask questions to get him off of his his talking points and then him relaxing as time goes on but he didn't he came right out super relaxed um and very different than i've ever heard him before and I, and i liked that um it, i also saw so what happened so we went to the that was in the morning and then that night he was giving a speech here in san diego right so the tv station that i work for was going to do an interview with him it was our tv station and and two others so we're in the media room waiting for Ted Cruz to get there. And it is a frantic scene. Like everyone's running around with their hair on fire. Like all the, the cruise people and the, the, the people organizing the event. And they're like, you go here, you go there. I got to go here. And I'm sure they're not freaking out, but it just, it just, it was very frantic. And I don't, I don't operate at that pace. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I like to keep things chill. Uh, and everyone was moving real fast. And then Ted Cruz got there. And um, calmest person in the room because the media people there were nervous to interview him. Um, and, and the cruise people were like, we're three minutes late. Right? And he was just, he walked in just the most casual person in the whole room. Super nice. I, I don't think I, I touched him for like a second before we, we did our interview. But So I haven't talked to him one-on-one, cameras off, cameras or radio off. I haven't done that. Yeah. But just watching him talk to other people, just very casual, very calm, um, very normal. Shook his hand. Um, said we had five minutes. Five minutes to do a TV interview. Camera went on. Lights go on. Boom! Right back into Harvard debate team. If you're someone who is rooting for Ted Cruz, that's got to be frustrating. It, it the, the Harvard debate team thing's got to stop. It's got it, but he can't. It, it comes across, and I heard Glenn say this the other day, sort of. I don't think he used these words, but you could tell. Uh, it comes across comes across as disingenuous. Now, I I think he is genuine. Please get me right. I think he is. I know he's genuine, but it comes across as disingenuous to people, and, and I think it creates a disconnect between him and the average person. There's no doubt about that. And then when you compare that to Trump, and I think that's what people, um, part of what people mean when they say Trump says it like it is, or he speaks my language. He doesn't do the political, not even the words. Forget about the words. It's the talking like this. It's, it's every word is a Shakespearean soliloquy. That's what comes across as used car salesmen like. And that's what the people are sick of. So Donald Trump comes in and just talks like a normal guy. I bet if this would be an interesting experiment, actually, if you took Trump's words and read them, performed them in Cruz's style, I think they would fall flat. And I think flip it around. I think if you took Cruz's words and read them in Trump's style, people would be like, ah, that Cruz guy really tells it like it is. Speaks my language. Right? I don't think it's the language. I think it's the tone. That's the most important thing. I don't know how you overcome that, to be honest. But that's the deal breaker. It really is. I think I think that's the biggest thing holding Cruz back. No doubt about it. And it's so funny. Like I, I don't know how Abraham Lincoln spoke, but just by reading about you know how he gave speeches and stuff like that, he probably did soaring rhetoric. I mean, they spoke for hours. These guys. Um, we don't need that today. And I think about you know James Madison, the father of the Constitution, was five foot four. He would never be elected today because of how short he was. <laughs> like, how stupid is that? 
And maybe people would hear Abraham Lincoln today and be like, oh, he's so disingenuous. He doesn't say it like it is. What a shame to have that hold you back. But I suppose that's the culture we live in today. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. It's game time here, right? We got two months till this, uh, at least the voting's over, the primary, and then we got uh, another month in the convention. Exciting. Um, I want to play one clip, one short, short, short clip from the Ted Cruz interview, just as a setup. Um, I'm not, I don't want to talk about Ted Cruz. I'm, we're past that. Um, I think what he said here is going to be the most important discussion of the next few years. I'll say four years. We talked last week about this major push that will be coming for a guaranteed minimum income. That's the new thing, a guaranteed minimum income. Sometimes it's called a big basic income guarantee, whatever it's called. It's about $30,000 a year you get no matter what. And here's the key. It's going to be pitched as the moral thing to do. You hear it a lot now. You heard Jerry Brown, governor of California, two weeks ago when he raised the minimum wage to $15. He said in the signing ceremony, this doesn't make any economic sense. Or no, excuse me. He said it makes no economic sense. But it's the moral thing to do. You heard Bernie Sanders at the Vatican the other day praise the Pope because he's on the same side as fighting for a moral economy. They are trying to take the moral high ground. Now, they don't have it because capitalism is the most moral economic system there is. And we'll talk about why in a second. But they're trying to take it. They're going to say it's immoral to have so many people on low paying jobs. They're going to say it's immoral to have so many people unemployed. Now, no one's going to realize that the reason why so many people are unemployed is because of government actions like raising the minimum wage. That won't matter to people. They say all the, the entire economy today, it's immoral. So we got to give everyone a guaranteed minimum income, whether they're working or not. Everyone gets $30,000 to take care of their family. It's the moral thing to do. People like the sound of that. So... It's up to conservatives to make the argument about the importance of meaningful work. The importance of meaningful work. Not for the sake of the economy, but for the sake of our lives, for the sake of our souls, for the sake of our happiness, for the sake of our... Well, I'll let Ted Cruz use the word. Listen uh, to this clip here. Uh, I'll just give you a hint. It's a D word. The word starts with the letter D. And this is going to be the thing that conservatives have to be able to articulate so clearly and feel it so passionately in our hearts. Otherwise, we're going to lose this battle as well. Here's Ted Cruz. You know, you mentioned Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks has a wonderful new book, The Conservative Party, talks about, you know, the biggest reason you want people to work. Yes, you want them to be able to earn money. But, but fundamentally, when you work, when you have a productive job, 
it gives you dignity. It gives you self-respect. When you come home and look at your kids and you're providing for your kids, that meaningful work is powerful for happiness. And we've got the lowest percentage of Americans working today of any year since 1977. The Obama-Clinton economy doesn't work. And the reason I'm running for president— Did you guess the word? The D word? Dignity. It's all about dignity. A couple days ago, I talked with a good friend of mine, Don Watkins. He's the author of a new book, Required Reading, for The Mike Slater Show. It's called Equal is Unfair. Please buy it. Equal is Unfair. It's by Don Watkins. It's all about the income inequality myth. And I asked him about um, Jerry Brown, again, saying that uh, you know raising the minimum wage makes no economic sense, but it's the moral thing to do. And uh, what he said here is so important. Uh, take this in. You know, there is a time in this country where people view dignity as I take care of my own life and of my family. And they did not view dignity as I'm, I've use the government to force other people to take care of my life and my family. That is, I view dignity as something that the individual achieves on his own by living a self-supporting, self-directing life, not something that you can achieve at the expense of others. This has really gone on since the 60s and 70s, where you had on the left, it was called the welfare rights movement. And what they said to people is, at the time, millions of people were eligible for welfare and refused to take it because they they regarded it as dignified to take care of their own life, even if they were relatively poor. And what the welfare rights movement told them was, you know what, dignity is not getting a handout. Dignity is, uh, um, your dignity is hurt not by getting a handout. Your dignity is hurt by getting low pay for a job. And I think just the reverse is true. And we've really taught people to feel ashamed of supporting their lives at a low-paying job, when I think that that is something that we should actually admire and encourage people to do and encourage them to grow out of it and find an even better job. And so I think this is far from being a moral action. It's I mean, you know, there's really not any polite words to use. So let's just call it a completely immoral one. Yeah, okay. I think what you heard there is so important. Uh, let me take a, let me take a, let's take a, a beat here and, and visualize this. In America, it used to be immoral to be on welfare, to take handouts. It was immoral. Better dead than on the dole was the expression. If you took a handout, you lost dignity. Now, of course, there's extraneous circumstances here, uh, disability, illness, blah, 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 blah. Of course, of course. I'm talking about fully functioning adults, right? So it used to be immoral to be on welfare. If you took a handout, it was you lost dignity. That's how it used to be. Today, the welfare rights movement has been able to flip it around. Now, it's undignified to have a low-paying job. And you don't, and you gain dignity by taking welfare. You gain dignity by receiving handouts. It's the moral thing to do, to be able to, Get money from other people so you can take care of your family. But it really, so other people can take care of your family. See how they've been able to flip that? It's amazing. And it's not just in America. This is how humans are across cultures. Give me an example. There's a tribe in Kenya, East Africa, uh, Samburu. 
when a boy becomes a man, they have a, a rite of passage. as a ritual where the boy passes by the mother's hut. And the mom asks her son if he wants any milk. Now, milk is a delicacy in the tribe. It's very rare, and it's only for children. The boy, who's now a man, refuses his mother's milk. That's the moment he becomes a man. That's the moment of the personal transformation from receiver of sustenance to giver of sustenance. The boy no longer needs to be dependent on his mother. We live in a country where the government is taking on the role of mother long into adults' adulthood. We've had teachers on this show call in who have said that they uh, ask their kids what they want to be when they grow up and they say they want to be on welfare, which is saying they never want to not be dependent. Right, they they will always want to be dependent. They never want to be independent. That is shameful. But the left flips it and says, "No, no, no. The moral thing is to keep people dependent. That's the moral thing to do." Amazing, they've been able to flip it. There's another tribe in Africa, the, the Maasai tribe, and a boy. They have another rite of passage. The boy turns into a man when he goes on a hunt, kills an animal, and he gives the biggest portion uh, to his mom. And it's a thank you for raising him, and it's a symbol of the role being reversed. The mom, for, the, for all of his life, has given her, ev- everything of her to him, and now he gives everything of him to provide for her. We are, well, let me, actually, I'll, I'll give one more example. Um, there's an area in southern Spain, um, I'll quote here from David Gilmore who wrote about the men of this area. He said, the worker's reputation as a citizen and a man is closely bound up with clearly defined service to family. A man who skirts these obligations renounces his claim to both respectability and manhood. He becomes a despised less than man, a wastrel, a gambero. A gambero is a reprobate who acts like a carefree child or who lives parasitically off women. Okay, so we have uh, tribes in Africa, southern Spain, and all of American history. We are clearly moving away from this truth. Dependency as a man should be seen as shameful. Now, again, if you're disabled or whatever, please, come on. There's circumstances here. I'm talking about completely capable adult males choosing not to provide. Now, if there's a fully capable adult male who's unable to find a job beyond his own fault, then that's the fault of government making it nearly impossible for businesses to hire people. But it's our job to get people to see that it's the government that's killing economic opportunities. It's the government that's making it harder for people to provide for their families. And only then will people conclude that it's not the moral thing to have the government provide and keep everyone dependent. It's the moral thing to get the government out of our lives completely so that adults can provide for their own families. We have to be able to make this argument clearly and succinctly. We have, you have the moral high ground. You know that how meaningful and how important work is 
to a person's dignity and self-worth. How important it is for men to provide for their families. That's the moral thing to do, but the left's going to try to steal it from you by saying the moral thing is to keep as many people as possible dependent on them. That's going to be the great breaking point of our country. And that's going to be the big debate in the next four years. But no one's more capable of you to have that debate. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, how are you? Slater Radio on Twitter. Um, yeah, might as well do this. So, Bernie Sanders the other day said companies like GE are destroying the moral fabric of America. <laughs> so again, the, using the moral argument. I don't even know what that means, by the way. Like, I don't even. <laughs> what do you mean? What's that was GE. Like, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm assuming it has to do with corporate greed, right? The greed of GE. Destroying the moral fabric of America. I'll quote the great Milton Friedman when he said, Who isn't greedy? Where's the society that doesn't run on greed? Show that to me. Russia doesn't run on greed. China doesn't run on greed. None of us are greedy, though, right? Only the other fellas greedy. Capitalism is the most moral of all the economic system because it controls greed. That's what we all need to understand. And you do, but we need to be able to articulate that clearly. Capitalism is the most economic or the most moral economic system because it controls greed. Everyone's greedy all the time, no matter what, wherever you live, whatever economic system you live under. Everyone's greedy. The question is which economic system best controls it and channels it into something good and productive. In other systems, if you're greedy, you kill someone for what they have. In other systems, if you're greedy, you steal from them or you pass laws that, that lets you plunder what they have. In capitalism, if you want money, you can't kill someone for it. It's against the law. You can't steal for it. It's against the law. You can't pass it. Well, you can more and more pass laws to take, but, but you, you shouldn't. That's not moral. In capitalism, if you want money, you have to serve other people so that they give their money to you freely, on their own, voluntarily. It's amazing. You have to serve other people in order to satiate your greed. And every other, every, this is the key. You, if you're having this conversation with someone and they think capitalism's bad and they think everyone's greedy, whatever, you, you got to get the person to first agree that everyone's greedy. Always. No matter what. Human nature, after the fall, we're greedy. Everyone is greedy. Everyone. So what system best controls it? Capitalism. Why? Because the only way to satiate your greed is to do things that serve other people so that other people give you their money in exchange for what you do that serves them. Now, there are uh, Bernie Sanders supporters listening. 
And they're saying, Slater, the system is rigged. Okay. Who rigged it? Who rigged the system? Oh, yeah. yeah businesses did. Sure. But with whose help? GE can't rig the system on their own. GE can't pass laws that rig the system. It's the politicians who rigged the system. Now, sure, they did it for, they did things that support or or benefit big business, but they really did it for their greed because they get the benefit. They get more money out of it in the end. It's the politicians' fault. Of course, the businesses want special favors. Of course, the businesses want to try to, instead of serving customers, they want to just get money from the government, get money from taxpayers so they don't have to serve people anymore. But that's not capitalism. That is socialism. (laughs) So if you want to go after, you want to get to the the people who are, how do I say, if the system is rigged, let's go after the people who rigged it. And they're the politicians. And this is what I don't understand about people who, like Bernie supporters who think the system is rigged. They want a bigger government. We're just going to put more people who are going to rig the system in there. If you believe there's too much greed, the, the, the solution to that is a smaller government. Anyway, back to GE. Um, destroying the moral fabric of America, right? He stood up. The GE, the CEO of GE stood up and he said, what are you talking about? He said, we've been around for 124 years. He said, we've never been a big hit with the socialists. He said, we sustain 125,000 U.S. jobs. 125,000. And he said, listen, Bernie, you're the senator of Vermont. We've invested $100 million in just the last few years to make jet engine components in Vermont. Been doing it since the 50s. High-wage manufacturing jobs, right in, right in your state of Vermont. We make jet engine parts. That's incredible. People don't realize that because they're, they're greedy. GE is so greedy. He said in Vermont, GE Healthcare employs 240 people in South Burlington and spends $40 million a year on businesses, uh, you know, uh, supporters and, and parts and services and stuff in Vermont, $40 million on other businesses in Vermont alone, just Vermont, like little teeny tiny Vermont, 40 million bucks. And he said, yeah, of course we have plants and operations abroad, obviously, but that's because America's five has 5% of the world's population. And we do business in 180 countries. So, of course, we're going to open up a, you know, an office in China or whatever. It's not even mean we're moving to China. <laughs> because when we do business in China, there's 1.3 billion people there. We benefit from that as well here in America. Because the headquarters of GE are here in America. Now, that's not a guarantee thing forever. The more we attack GE, the more we, we raise taxes and pass regulations and increase the rhetoric The GE may move to Ireland, right? The the great Irish company, General Electric. Keep attacking them, Bernie. Keep attacking them, people on the left. Be careful what you wish for. They might just pack up and leave. Destroying the moral fabric of America. How so? Oh, they're so greedy. They're greedy, right? But, But everyone else who wants more of their money, they're not greedy. Bernie Sanders isn't greedy. Bernie Sanders, he doesn't do anything to create jet engine parts. Right. He has nothing to do with the creation of jet engine parts or any of the good things that GE does that improves our lives. Not, nothing. But he wants more of GE's money. And he's not the greedy one. 
and the people at Bernie Sanders rally, they want more of GE's money, and they're not the ones uh, making jet engine parts or anything like that, and they want more of GE's money, but they're not the greedy people? Interesting. Mike Slater, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. One more quick thing on greed. The VA scandal. What fuels the VA scandal? It's greed. That's, I mean, that, that's what that is. It's, again, I, I, I wish we could just move past this. How do I word this? Let me, let me build up to it. So this is a new story, by the way. Um, it turns out that supervisors have instructed their employees to lie about wait times at VA hospitals in seven states now. In over 40 facilities, supervisors lying about wait times, putting people on non-existent wait lists until they die so that they can, they can, uh, they can report that the wait times are decreasing so that they can make more money. They get more bonuses. The faster the wait times, the more money they get. That is greed. That is fueled by greed. So I say this to Bernie Sanders supporters and and, and Democrats who trust bigger government for some reason. If I had one wish, one wish, it would be for people to stop thinking that just because the government does it, it, then everyone in the government is an angel. That people who operate in the free market they are they are sinful people. But as soon as they enter government land, then they become sinless angels. I wish people could get past that. No, no, no. You're you're a greedy, sinful person in the free market, and then you're a greedy, sinful person in government land. It's just worse in government land because now you have the protection of bureaucracy to hide your sins. A greedy person in the free market can only be as greedy as they are successful. Write that line now. That's a good line. A greedy person in the free market can only be as greedy as they are successful. A greedy person in government can be greedy all day long. Nothing will stop them. VA supervisors are lying about wait times. Listen to this. 40 hospitals, right? So there were at least that we know of 40 supervisors who were lying about VA wait times. Then the Phoenix scandal broke, right? That was the first that we knew of this happening. And all those supervisors kept lying, kept manipulating wait times. They didn't stop. They kept lying because they knew that they could never be touched. Think about that. You would think. That the person who's manipulating wait times in uh, Oklahoma, I don't know where, and they'd say, oh my gosh, geez, look, they got, they got caught in Phoenix. Unbelievable. We better stop lying. No, they didn't. They kept going. They kept doing it. They thought they could never be touched. Why do we trust government? And this is, this is not like, I'm trying to think of like a government bureaucracy that no one even knows about. Obviously, I don't even know because we don't even know, but just like waste, like stupid 
dumb bureaucracies at like the Department of Interior or something. I don't even know what the Department of Interior I, what are, like some ridiculous little thing on the side that no one pays attention to. Not, we're talking about health care for veterans. And even that can't stop the greed. So if you're going to take someone, and you're, if you're going to believe that only you know CEOs are greedy people, but people in government are are not. These are people who are in charge of healthcare for our veterans, and they're fueled by greed. They would rather put dying veterans on a wait list until they die than actually give them the service that they need. That's incredible, and that's greed. That's for their own selfish benefit, for their own bonuses. There's a new poll done. <clears throat> Read it the other day. Uh, it's obvious. And the conclusion is millennials want socialism until they get a job, right? Once, once kids start making around fifty to $60,000, that's when they don't want socialism anymore. No surprise. Because once they start making 50, 60 grand, they're working hard for it. And they're thinking, well, it's my money. <laughs> is that greedy of them? I don't know. No more greedy than the person who makes 30 grand who wants someone else's money. That's my point. Everyone's greedy. We played a clip earlier of Don Watkins. Again, the book is um, Equal is Unfair. Please read it. And he talks about the history of Sweden. You know, people look to Sweden and Denmark, Bernie Sanders and all the rest, and they say, oh, look at these Scandinavian countries. They're all so happy. Everything's so great. Everything's so wonderful. Look how prosperous they are. And, and look, they have high minimum wage, and they have guaranteed this and guaranteed that, and they just live in these wonderful socialist utopias. But they, people say that and they don't know the history of these countries, the recent history. These countries, Sweden, Denmark, Scandinavian countries, I'll just use, I'll say Sweden, just meaning all the Scandinavian countries. They used to be super poor, like the poorest countries in the world, absolutely dirt poor. Then uh, around the turn of the century, they embraced capitalism. They embraced free markets. That's when their standard of living just shot through the roof. That's when they became super prosperous. It's only been since the 60s that they've embraced socialism. Right? These are new socialist countries. And since they've embraced socialism and all these other socialist tendencies, their standard of living has gone down dramatically. They're so poor in these still Like even today, they're super poor in these countries. If Sweden became a U.S. state, let's say we, we, we added a 51st state. And we said Sweden is going to be the 51st state in the United States. If you look at the, uh, this is tricky to explain. Uh, let me do it as quickly as possible. Purchasing power parity. Uh, basically, that's, uh, it's, a, it's a measurement that adjusts for the standard of, or for the cost of living. Okay, so it, it adjusts for this. So it tries to level this number out a little bit. So being as fair as possible. Purchasing power parity. So if you if Sweden became a U.S. state, Sweden would be poorer than all but twelve U.S. states. All right, so only twelve states would be poorer than Sweden. Sweden would be one of the poorest states in the country. Why do we want to aspire to that? It's wild. Think about this. Bernie Sanders like we need to be more like Sweden, and you got crowds of twenty thousand people like ah. That's like saying that'd be like Bernie Sanders saying we need to be more like Mississippi. We want the whole country to be as poor as Mississippi. Huh? Why are people cheering that? Why do we have this? See, it just ties back into this illusion that we have. Um, delusion, I should say. That uh, 
these Sweden, these uh, Scandinavian countries in Europe are so happy and prosperous and wonderful. We need to be more like them. No, no, no. They're, they're, they wish they could be as prosperous as us. If you adjust for the cost of living, the countries that I'm going to list off right now are poorer than every state in America. Okay? I'm looking at median household income. Not not average. Median's the middle number. Um, so it adjusts for the outliers, right? So so you know we, we have Bill Gates, right? Who has billions of dollars. If I took the if I took the average median household income, then it would be a little bit higher because we have Bill Gates on our team. But if you look at the median, that's the middle. So you take out Bill Gates, who's the richest, and you take out the person who's the super poorest, and then you take out the next super richest person, and then you get rid of the. Middle, the, the super poorest, second poorest person, right? So it's the middle number, median household income. And if you adjust for cost of living, these countries are poorer than every state. Mississippi is the poorest state in the union. So all these countries are poorer than Mississippi. Czech Republic, Estonia, Greece, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, Japan, Korea, Poland, Portugal, Slovenia, Spain, and the United Kingdom. England. England is poorer than Mississippi. Median household income adjusted for cost of living. So I'm giving the benefit that that helps these European countries. That improves their standing. And they're still below Mississippi. Why do we want to be more like Europe? Oh, because they're not greedy over there. Right. Please don't trust the government. I know you don't. Let's get other people to not as well. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater. Show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. listening to Mike Slater. Thank you to everyone who shared our uh, most recent video on Facebook. We talked about it earlier. It's about how uh, in uh, Los Angeles, they raised the minimum wage two years ago, but exempted the unions. So the think about it. The unions fought to raise the minimum wage and all the pawns, uh, all the people who were making minimum wage who thought that they'd be making more money, the unions then exempted themselves. Unbelievable story. I did a three-minute video on this the other day. Um, and I, th- I think it's, yeah, it's right up there with one of my most watched videos we've ever put up. So, um, please share it and spread the word, right? People need to know that the unions have exempted themselves from these minimum wage hikes. It's a total scam. And I know we, you've heard and you've talked to, you've heard people talk about the minimum wage and you know, all the different angles. Um, this is a new one. So <laughs> please spread it. It's on our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater show on Facebook and, uh, and find it there. Um, all right, I got a few more minutes. Do one more quick segment here on uh, Bernie Sanders and greed and all this stuff. So 40,000 Verizon employees went on strike. They're on strike right now. East Coast employees, uh, two unions, and they're, I don't know, they, they're they striking for whatever unions always want. I don't know. So Bernie Sanders was in Buffalo, New York the other day, 
And he said, in a given year, Verizon has not paid a nickel in taxes despite billions in profit. Okay? They, they haven't paid a nickel, not a nickel in taxes. Billions in profit, not a nickel in ta- And you can imagine the crowd of whatever, 10,000 people. Go, oh, Verizon's the worst. Big corporate greed. Blah, blah, blah. So the CEO of Verizon, inspired by the CEO of GE, who spoke up a couple of days ago, the CEO of Verizon stands up and says, um, excuse me, uh, Senator, in the last two years, we've paid $15.6 billion in taxes. 15.6 billion in two years last year we had a 35 percent tax rate 35 percent how is that <laughs> what the Bernie sanders gets off there that they paid no taxes meanwhile they paid 15 billion in the last two years and unbelievable a couple days ago i was thinking you know and this is a uh shocking statement Really offensive, shocking statement. Really, I'm not like this is going to sound so contrary, especially everything our kids and younger people are told. Your opinion can be wrong. I know, like, like what? No, no, my my opinion is precious, and my opinion has this force field around it, and I I will not let that force field be penetrated by actual facts. We have this bizarre notion in America, our culture today. That just because you believe something or just because you have an opinion about something, that means that it, it, it must be right and it cannot be challenged because it's my opinion. And like, yeah, you can have the opinion that your favorite color is green, okay? And you can have your opinion that whatever, Game of Thrones is the best show on TV, fine. But you can't have the opinion that Verizon doesn't pay any taxes when they had a 35% tax rate last year. Your opinion can be wrong. Now, I got two minutes. I'm going to make this argument here. Probably not the best note to leave on because this is going to be controversial to some people. Alfred Marshall, in 1890, he wrote a book called Principles of Economics. He said, it is probable that those businessmen who have pioneered new paths have often conferred on society benefits out of proportion to their own gains, even though they have died millionaires. So what he's saying is, you know, you you look at a billionaire and you say, oh, look how much he's benefited. Look how much he's exploited the people who work for him and how much he's exploited the people who who bought his product or service. People say, look at how the, the CEO, look how much he's benefited. But this guy's argument is, and mine is too, that we, the people, benefit way more than the CEO, even if the CEO is a billionaire. Look at Verizon. The CEO of Verizon made $18 million last year. A lot more than I made. But without him, I wouldn't have a cell phone. Now you can say, oh, it's AT&T. Or, well, yeah, but the, the principles are the same, right? Without these CEOs running these companies, I wouldn't have a cell phone. I have gained more from this guy being a CEO and a good CEO than he has by being a CEO. I've gained more. He has billions of dollars, yes, but I have a working cell phone and internet. In many ways, I exploit him. Look at Apple. I've benefited way more from Apple than Tim Cook has benefited from me. Let's say I spend $2,000 on a computer, whatever. Um, I don't know how much of that goes to CEO pay. Maybe five bucks? 
So he's gotten five bucks from me, but I got this awesome computer from him. I've exploited him more than he's exploited me. That's the truth. Or maybe no one exploits anyone. That's, that's better than the truth. No one exploits anyone. We all engage in mutually beneficial voluntary trade. Everyone wins. That's called capitalism. And why we listen to socialists who say that Verizon paid no income taxes last year when they paid billions in taxes. Like, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> Slider Crusaders, thanks for being here. Our interview with Ted Cruz, um, it's on our Facebook page now. Of course, you can check it out at the, uh, the podcast section of uh, the Blaze Radio uh, as well. And again, that video we did about unions fighting for a higher minimum wage and then exempt, exempting themselves. Incredible story. Everyone needs to know it. Please share it on our Facebook page. And we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.